here's the tricky thing about football. Football players are highly dependent on each other. Mm-hmm. It's probably like the greatest team sport. The quarterback, no matter how great they are, can't do their job if the line doesn't show up. And right. if the defense decides to, you know, play great and the offense goes three and out and they have to continue to be on the field, they're eventually they're not going to be able to hold up. So everything's interdependent. And so understanding that, yeah, great rookie season, but a lot of it is still dependent on how we function together as a team. Not even from a talent standpoint, but how we show up, how we perform, how we push each other. Is there any dysfunction within a locker room? Is there high engagement? All those different factors. And so understanding that that could potentially happen, there was a let's just work hard and get there when we get there. (laughs) Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of Crazy Money. This is your host, Paul Ollinger, coming to you live from Atlanta, Georgia, where it is a great day to be alive, as it is wherever you are today. Hope you're making the most of these 24 hours. I've got a great conversation to share with you today. As you know, every week on Crazy Money, we explore the connection between money and happiness, work and meaning through the lens of my guests' expertise and or personal journeys. Today, we're going to hear the story of former NFL wide receiver Mohamed Masakwa, and we're going to jump right into it today. No announcements, no distractions, no requests, just let's talk. Let's talk about Mohamed. Mohammed's got a great journey. He is a first-generation American born to parents who escaped the Civil War in Liberia, and life has thrown a whole lot more than passes at Mohammed Masakwai. He grew up in Charlotte, North Carolina. He became a star receiver in high school and then at the University of Georgia Go Dogs, and was a second-round draft pick for the Cleveland Browns. He had a really great first season, and then through organizational challenges and serious concussions, his pro career got cut short after just four and a half years in the big leagues. And Muhammad had to deal with how do you adjust to life after football? And while he's doing this, while he's making his way forward in the business world, he had an ATV accident that resulted in the amputation of his left hand. So Muhammad's had all kinds of changes in his life that he's had to deal with, and yet he has persevered. After football and after the accident, Muhammad regrouped, and pushed himself to new heights. He studied at Harvard Business School and is earning his master's in industrial organizational psychology at the University of Georgia. He has an organization called Vessel, his consulting company that he's using to help organizations going through transformational change, and he will tell you all about it. I thoroughly enjoyed my conversation with Muhammad, which we had in my basement here in Atlanta. Turns out we're almost neighbors. We live uh, very close to each other, and I'm so glad I got to meet this person He's highly accomplished, but you will find him, as I did, incredibly humble, very centered, and the kind of person you want to be around in your life. And so I know you will enjoy this conversation with my new friend, Mohamed Masakwa. Mohamed Masakwa, welcome to Crazy Money. Uh, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Mohamed, what was your home life like as a kid? Interesting question, because I'm actually first-generation born American. Mm-hmm. And so... Where are your folks from? Liberia. Mm-hmm. You almost grew up as a dual citizen, you know, where you're parents culturally from the food the music the things that you watch on tv is heavily based from liberia and african origin but then you know actually living in america i'm from charlotte you get like this a dual exposure and so were you born here yeah i was born here mm-hmm. yeah but it's still there's certain things that are out of context because my folks aren't born here and so all the principles and the lessons that they've learned and that they're passing on to me were heavily rooted from across the water so did you have a bit of an outsider's perspective as a kid or did you feel like you were american first liberian second how was that 
honestly didn't realize the difference that other people didn't have a similar exposure until I got older because you you know you're not mature enough when you're a kid and so I I think I've become just more curious as to where people are from who people actually are Mm -hmm. not the surface level things right what values did your parents instill in you as a kid well hard work is one of them appreciation of life the reason my family came over here was because Liberia was a war-torn country at the time and so just the appreciation of the simple things, because if you look around the world, there's just chaos in a lot of places. And so not having to deal with that element per se, just the value of life, to work hard, to go after your things that, you know, you can create opportunities depending on how you approach a situation. And so I think that early foundation has allowed me to, you know, move throughout life and just see things as opportunities rather than challenges. What kind of work did your folks do? So my mom worked for a long time for a company, Baxter, which eventually became Cardinal. Uh, so she was in the healthcare space, I would say. And so my dad sells cars. Yeah. Yeah. When did you get into sports? Sports has just always been a thing. So my folks were both athletes. My dad played soccer growing up, ran track. And so I think it's just, I watch my daughter right now. You know, she likes to move around and run around. Yeah. I'll continue to support her <laughs> in that. But my folks just, you know, knowing that it was something that they like to do is something that I may like to do. And, and so they pushed me into sports early and had no real, you know, ulterior motive other than just, hey, you know, we think the kid will have fun in it. And, you know, that created opportunities for other things. What was your favorite subject in school? Undergrad or grad? <laughs> Grade school, high school. What attracted you as academically when you were young? And did you have any idea what you wanted to be when you grew up, when you were like 12, 14 years old? Yeah, school was interesting because I got really good grades, but I never knew what to actually do with them. If that makes sense. <laughs> what do you mean? You know, I'm from inner city kid, so I, mm-hmm. I never really saw professionals growing up. You know, everybody worked probably laborious type jobs, factory type jobs, um, very blue collar type jobs. And so the connection between what was learned to what it, would be used for. I never really understood just because I didn't see it growing up. But my mom would do something very interesting that she'd always drive us around to really affluent parts of the city. Mm. And that curiosity is, what are they doing? Why'd she do that, do you think? Exposure. She understood if you can get exposed to something, you can develop your own curiosity towards it. Once you develop your own curiosity, you create ownership of where you're going from it. If somebody else tells you, hey, you should do X, Y, Z, you may or may not gravitate towards it. But if you can kind of connect dots for yourself, then that will fill you for the rest of life. And I think that she was very accurate in that. But you didn't have like, I want to be a lawyer like Jimmy's dad, so I'm going to study English hard so I learn how to write. To be honest with you, I didn't know what a lawyer was right. probably until high school. Yeah, know? yeah. You know, conceptually, but it's almost, these people are different. I don't see it. I have no idea as to the pathway to see it. Now it makes complete sense that they're, you know, you've gone through life a little bit, but inner city and communication was a lot different than where now you can get on your phone and you can see anything. None of that existed right, <laughs> growing up in right. my generation. And so I think it was just my mom's way of saying, hey, I can't necessarily show this to him. So let me take him to a place that maybe he can figure it out for himself. When did it become clear that you were a special athlete? I don't know, actually. The weird thing about, you look at athleticism on a spectrum. 
If you go to the gym right now, you'll see people that are athletic, some more than others. And so growing up where everybody's playing outside, everybody's somewhat athletic. And then throughout life, maybe some people work a little bit harder. Some people don't get injured. Some people don't have other situations that they have. And then I was very fortunate to Charlotte rezoned. And when they rezoned, I was zoned for a school that had a guy named Tommy Knotts there. And he's won 10 high school state championships. He's a head coach. He's a head coach for mm-hmm. the high school, high school football team. And so I was there as that, you know, dynasty was starting where you win 109 games in a row, seven straight championships. And so you start <laughs> That's to— a pretty good record. Uh, yeah, he, he did all right. We won eight games in four years. That's tough. <laughs> it wasn't fun. I can imagine that the, not the stress fun. and the depression that goes <laughs> along with that. We didn't even know we were supposed to win. We didn't even know we had a chance to win. Ah, yeah, that, I'd like to have a conversation with your coach. I would too. But you were part of a winning— tradition you got to a place that winning was baked in winning was baked in work ethic was baked in opportunity was baked in understanding of the future was baked in and so it wasn't necessarily a realization of a special athlete it was Mm -hmm. more so of a realization of a special opportunity a lot of people may have coming from this you know program now it's up to the individuals to do what they need to do to take advantage of it so when you got to this program there must have been a lot of really good athletes there Oh, yeah. I mean, you win 109 games in a row. You, That's you, not just one dude. <laughs> no, it's not. It's not one dude. No, we, we had a guy that was the pioneer of it, I mm-hmm. guess you could say, Chris Leak, who he became the number one recruit in the nation, went to Florida eventually, and he brought a lot of attention to the program. Mm-hmm. And, and so when you get that type of attention and you're under that type of microscope in ways that you probably would not be if you were elsewhere, you start to realize that this is a very unique chance that I have. Okay, but there's 50 state championship teams every year around the country mm-hmm. say there's 24 guys 24 starters or is that where no 22, 22 right? mm-hmm. <laughs> i used to play football mm-hmm. i should know this right all good, all good. 22 starters going both ways plus some special teams guys whatever but not all those guys are going to play d1 ball mm-hmm. when did you know that you had d1 qualifications and not just d1 but like sec d1 and yes, everybody who's not from an SEC school, the SEC is the best conference. Clearly, clearly. <laughs> SEC is the cream of the crop for sure. <laughs> the athletes that are really good in other conferences should have been in the SEC. They just did, didn't make <laughs> they the didn't right know about it. They didn't know better at the time. I mean, you you size yourself up. You, mm-hmm. you, you know, you size other people up. You, you say, okay, I'm as tall as this particular individual, right. weigh the same, run the same, can do similar things. And so when you see someone else go that's a little bit older than you, then you start to say, hmm, if they went, maybe I got a shot. And then when Chris went and he brought all, all that attention, you know, after he left, he's two years older, that attention stayed on the program because we still had people that right. were, were still there playing at a high level. And so it was, I think I got my first offer from Carolina, my end of my sophomore year, I want right. to say. Carolina's a dream school if you're Carolina or Duke, you know, sure. depending, depending Absolutely. on where you are in the state. And so when you see that happen, you're like, I have it. Now I can't mess it up. (laughs) Did people start treating you differently as you started to get that kind of attention nationally? Did you feel like a celebrity or do you feel like people treated you like? Nah. No? Nah, not. You seem like a very modest guy. I'm not sure that's absolutely true. I wouldn't say so just because, I mean, this is before the era of social media. This is before the era of just everybody trying to find attention. And in that era, you just you're yourself and you have your friends and they cheer you on and you're one of the guys and you're in Mm -hmm. the mix. So not necessarily. 
and then you have friends that are going through similar experiences. And so one of my best friends, Hakeem Nix, uh, he went to Carolina and he went to the NFL and our quarterback went to Georgia with me or Chris going to Florida or our running back going to East Carolina. And so you have similar people going through these experiences to where I don't want to say it becomes the norm, but it becomes expected that you're going to perform at a certain level. Obviously, Coach Knott's leading that charge. And even him as an individual, he's he was big on team. He was big on we're all in this together. And so there's never a time that he would allow an individual to, to think that they're bigger than the team. So you've got company and you've got expectations. So what you were going through felt not normal, but part of something bigger than just you. Yeah, but in all honesty, you're working extremely hard as well. No question. The, I don't say the reward, but there is an expectation of something to happen right. for the work that's being put in. How'd you choose the University of Georgia? God, it's interesting because we, um, the guy Joe Cox that I mentioned, we wanted to go to school together. He was uh, my high school quarterback, you know, best friend. And we were trying to figure out like how to make that happen. And he had an offer from Duke and we came down really for him to get a workout for Georgia. And he just crushed the workout, you know, rightly so. People just hadn't paid him enough attention and Georgia started to pay him more attention and he committed. And I had made up my decision as to where I'd go, whether Georgia or Texas or Tennessee or Clemson or Florida State, whichever schools were in the mix at the time. And it made sense, honestly. Georgia had two receivers graduating geographically it's or from a distance standpoint. It's a little under three hours to get from Charlotte to Athens. Once you step foot in Athens, you start to realize like how dynamic and how special UGA is. And it, it just felt, it felt right. I know I went to play in the SEC as well. And so when you put all those things in, I think Joe was the one that made me pay more attention to Georgia. And then after paying attention to Georgia, I was like, yeah, this is where I want to go. Was it stressful to make that decision? It is so many great programs, unless you just go to an extremely bad situation where you have three people playing your same position and there's right. just not enough space for you. But, you know, I have friends that have gone to other programs and they've done well and they've been able to see their dreams. But it's just the, it's more exciting than stressful. And when you get to Georgia, what were you thinking about the role of college football in your life? I mean, you've got to be thinking NFL, but you also are aware, empirically speaking, that the average NFL career is very short. How did you think about it? Or were you even thinking about the NFL at that point? When you're going after something, most people don't actually think about that. Yeah. You think about the thing that you are going after, and mm -hmm. then you'll course correct later if needed. But to spend energy on if this doesn't work out or that doesn't happen or whatever the case may be, all the things that you can't actually control, I think where people mess up is sometimes that they'll have their plan B right. versus developing the things along the way, whether it's education or insight that will allow them to pivot if the plan A doesn't work. So this is a, you know, falls into sort of the framework of process versus outcome, right? Like you're working hard to be the best you can be on the field, obviously, but you weren't relying necessarily that that was going to be the only thing you ever had in your life. You also studied hard. You were academic all SEC, right? Yeah. And so you understand the balance. You understand that I'm here. I might as well get a degree. I might as well do well in school. I might as well get something else out of this experience. And not only if football doesn't work out, but if football works out, I want to be able to be an intelligent football player. I want to be an intelligent human being just for the sake of you should, you know. Why did you pick psychology to study undergrad? I did. Why did you pick psychology? 
I've always been fascinated with people. And it might be just because of the upbringing of being always caught in between multiple cultures. And one of my favorite things to do is to be in a big, like, metropolitan area and just people watching, just understand, <laughs> just, you know. So being in New York or being in L.A. or wherever, like these London, being in these places that you can just absorb how people are interacting with each other. And so psychology was just a fascinating thing of maybe it's a sports thing as well. Like how do people perform? How do people come to their their being to do whatever the thing is that they want to do in life? Mm. When the NFL came calling, what were you thinking about your career? You seem to be able to focus on the here and now. Did you just think, let's go and see how well I can do and take it a year at a time? Or Oh, no. Uh, so you, there are clear-cut goals that my peers have mapped out. And so... I look at it as more so like the checkpoints. So mm. it's, yeah, I'm in football, so I want to get to the highest level, and the highest level is the NFL. You obviously have to go to high school, and then you have to go to college, and then right. you know hopefully you get drafted and, and you go there. And so for me, it was just like the next part of the checkpoint. And that's oversimplifying it because there's a lot of excitement in there. There's a lot of going through combines and pro days and workouts and interviews, and it's, it's a real job process, and you start to realize is very different than amateur sports once you're enthrusted into a locker room and you have grown people around you that have kids and mortgages and real-life responsibilities. But you start to realize that, I mean, there's 1,600 people at any given time that are playing, you know, give or take a couple of people here and there that are playing in the NFL at any given time. And so you scale that out, 7 billion, 8 billion people, wherever we are in the world, you start right. to realize how special it is. And you try to make that moment last for as long as your body allows. Hey, everybody, it's Paul. We'll be right back with Mohammed Masakwa in just a second. I want to speak to everybody who's listening to this on Apple Podcasts. Apple has completely redone their entire podcast app. And if you were previously receiving automatic weekly downloads of Crazy Money to your phone, you're very likely no longer doing that. Or if you want to receive them, there's something I want to walk you through real quickly. When you go to the Crazy Money page, the show page, the page for the show Crazy Money with Paul Ollinger, and you do that by clicking it where you see it, it's not the page with the number on it that has the title of the episode. It's the actual show itself. At the top of that page, there is a plus sign, P-L-U-S. If you see that, click the plus sign so that you automatically follow the show and select automatically receive downloads. That will make sure that every new episode of Crazy Money makes its way to your phone and you will listen to it, whether you have Wi-Fi, no Wi-Fi, cellular service or no cellular service, whether you're at the gym, on a walk, in the car, whatever. Click that plus and make sure you get automatic downloads. Is this self-serving of me telling it to you? Of course it is, but it's also serving you if you like the cooking we're doing here at the Crazy Money Kitchen above my garage. Thanks for listening. Now back to Mohammed Maspa. What did it feel like to go from being a, an inner city kid to being an NFL player with a multi-million dollar contract? <sighs> did you think about the money? Did you care about the money? Oh, yeah, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> um, just because there's, I mean, when you're coming from those environments, it's not just about you. A lot of times it's about when you have your folks working extremely hard and, and not always in jobs that they want to be in. Mm -hmm. um, and especially how my family came over when you're leaving the civil war and that's the time where you, my folks would have been in college and not really being able to become the thing that they wanted to become and then coming in America and then just trying to figure out how to make a way. And so coming from the inner city and environments that aren't always ideal, mm -hmm. being able to hopefully change the trajectory of that for 
your family and generations to come. That's a very big deal. You know, yeah. that's a very, very, very big deal. That's a lot of responsibility to take on. I mean, you were playing for your family across the ocean. That Not necessarily like your entire family, but your immediate family. Right. You, you know, and not necessarily like all of your immediate family. Like more, <laughs> you know, like, it's more like your folks. Yeah, more like My your, brothers and sisters e- can take care of yeah, themselves. Yeah, they're, they're self-sufficient. You know, more, <laughs> more parent, two individuals. Right, right. Um, and so from that regard, it feels good to be able to assist people that have made sacrifices in your life to help you get to where individuals that actually don't want anything in return, right? you know, where they weren't doing it with the expectation of anything, but to be able to hopefully add a little more comfort to their life has been great. And then you get a great foundation to move forward in life with too. And depending on how long you're able to play, you can really, you know, do some really interesting things as you decide to move forward. Did you make any mistakes with your money? I think that I would say for me, it was more so not understanding when you're first time, you just want to hold it all. You don't want to lose it. That's not everybody's instinct. For me, you yeah, don't yeah. want to lose it. And so when it comes to this is good or bad, you know, where mm-hmm. individuals might have been like a little bit more aggressive investing certain places, having a more conservative approach, now being more mature, like, Maybe I should have done a deal here or a deal there. I would much rather be on this side than not. But, you know, I think those are some of the things that you think about. I got drafted right after the recession hit. Mm -hmm. And so where, unfortunately, the country is going through like this crazy recession time, we're coming in a time where we have resources. And then potentially knowing, hmm, this is a great company to invest in or buy land over here. Right. Those are the things that I probably wish I would have been a little bit more well-educated on. But- you're 22 years old. You're 22. But here's the thing. I think now that I have a daughter, hopefully I'll know certain things to be able to educate her on right. if she comes into opportunities sure. later on in life. But if you come from a background where individuals don't know how to navigate those waters, that's where you just kind of, you either have to figure it out or you sit on the sideline or hopefully you don't make too many mistakes. Did you have somebody you could trust to talk about money and investment decisions and things like that? Yeah, I had a financial advisor, great financial advisor. And so was more so conservative, you know, like once you come into resources, you don't want to just start doing all this crazy stuff. Right. To do other things. I also can tell you <laughs> things I wish I would have invested in 11 years ago. Yeah. You know, like, I mean, this, you were the only one that if we all knew what the market was going to do between 2009 and 2020. Are you kidding me? Yeah, for sure. I've seen it three ways. I've seen people lose money. I've seen people that have been very conservative and they continue to ride. I've seen people that have made the right investments and right. knocked it out the park. You don't want to be in the part where you're losing money, yeah. you know? And so being conservative, I think is a, a better place to be than not. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so in the NFL, you've got to show up and play to earn your money, right? You can have a huge number on a contract, right? But not all of it's guaranteed. Am I misinterpreting nah, you're, that? You're accurate. Probably. I'm not sure how all the other sports work. I know basketball, baseball is fully guaranteed. I'm not mm-hmm. sure about hockey and, and some of the other leagues, but it is, you may sign a big deal and they may cut you. There was a guy right. who I think he might've played for the Broncos, one of their offense alignment. Popped his Achilles and $15 million gone. Wow. And he, he wasn't doing anything wrong. You know, he was right. literally working it out. And so it's it's not guaranteed. And that's unfortunate. Hopefully that changes at some point. But you understand that it's, this is a very performance-driven business. Yeah. So you had an incredible rookie year. 
mm-hmm. and came out of the gates hard was it hard not to think about okay this is going to be like this is going to be a cakewalk not a cakewalk but like this is how it's going to be every year for the rest of this contract and for years past that here's the tricky thing about football football players are highly dependent on each other mm-hmm. it's probably like the greatest team sport because the quarterback no matter how great they are can't do their job if the line doesn't show up and right. if the defense decides to you know play great and the offense goes three and out and they have to continue to be on the field they're eventually they're not going to be able to hold up so everything's interdependent and so understanding that yeah great rookie season but a lot of it is still dependent on how we function together as a team not even from a talent standpoint but how we show up how we perform how we push each other is there any dysfunction within a locker room is there high engagement all those different factors and so we had a lot of turnover. When you have a lot of turnover, it's really hard to have any type of cohesion moving into, and, and that creates a different set of problems, you know, mm-hmm. whether it be injuries or missed opportunities on the field. And so understanding that that could potentially happen, you know, there was a, let's just work hard and get there when we get there. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> so after four seasons, right, mm-hmm. you had a lot of injuries mm-hmm. and you left the league. Yeah. Four or five total seasons. Five. And so I made it to my fifth season and didn't finish it. Right. And that was due to concussions. Is that right? Yeah. Concussions were the major thing. So I had a big one my second year early in the season and then two the next year, another one the next year. And then like your your body just starts to break down. Right. After a while. Yeah. So what was it like to process out earlier than you would have liked to have left the league? Like, how did you feel about things? Did you know how you were going to reinvent yourself or find your purpose again after putting so much of your life into football? Here's the tricky thing about sports. Most people work really hard to become an expert in something Mm -hmm. or do something at an extremely high level. And once you master that, you can pretty much do it for as long as you want. Sports is the complete opposite. (laughs) (laughs) Right. You get to this pinnacle and then all of a sudden, like, you either can't sustain it because your body right. breaks down on you or there's other individuals. There's, there's so many other different things. Surgeons don't have 280-pound guys no. chasing them, <laughs> chasing no, them they, down they, the hall. They don't. So <laughs> one of my neighbors is the dentist in, God, how old is Paul? I think Paul's 70. They're late, late 60s or 70s. And, I mean, Paul, like, he just continues to do it and he loves it and he's going to continue to do it. And he has no desire to retire anytime soon. Tom Brady is defying all odds and he's yeah. 45, which is not even a season bet in a lot of, you know, organizations. Yeah. And so that's just the reality of it. I think we all know that it could go really fast. It could go really long. It depends on the situation you're in. There's a lot of things. Hopefully you're in a situation where you can play really long. And if not, hopefully you've done well by yourself to where you give yourself enough runway to figure out the next chapter. Well, that's easy to say now. But when you were going through it, how did it feel? It's frustrating because it's not... Here's the thing. If you have the potential to play a long time, Mm -hmm. you understand that. You know, I think I could have probably got 10 years in, especially how it came out the gate. And so when you factor that and you actually love the game and you love the locker room and you love the experience and then you're removed in the way that you intended it for it to end, that can be frustrating. Yeah. And so you got to deal with those emotions some individuals are highly depressed. Some individuals are frustrated. Some individuals have no idea what they're going to do. And not some, I say all. I honestly say all. Everybody goes through that range of emotions. And even the individuals that are playing now that know 
that chapter's about to end, they start to have that anxiety as to like, who am I without this particular right. thing? And that's a, takes time to figure that out. Something comes up a lot in this podcast is midlife career change. And I'm talking about people who are 45, 50 years old who have kind of, you know, done a couple of decades in a corporate world or whatever. And they're trying to think, okay, what do I want to do for the next couple of decades of my life before I kind of retire and, you know, my body wears out on me. But you're 26 at the time and everything you've ever known is football. Did you feel that you were going to be okay? Did you feel like deep down you're like, this is going to work out. I just don't know where I'm going to go right now. For me, yes. Because I knew I could just, I believe if you can function at a high level in one area, mm-hmm. that's not, you're not given one gift. We're multifaceted. And so I understood that it sucks. I would much rather be blamed. <laughs> <laughs> you get a chance to play a, you know, backyard football oh, for a for living, sure, you man. know, or in oh, basketball God. or whatever your sport is for a living. There's no way to actually replicate that. It yeah. is impossible. But I started to realize that, okay, graduate. There's so many other things that are under the hood. I can do it at high level. It's just a matter of figuring it out. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. So then a couple of years after you retire from football, mm-hmm. you're hanging out with some buddies. You guys are tearing around on ATVs. What happens? So I ended up getting an ATV accident. I mean, that ATV accident led to the amputation of my left hand. And so that is something that I don't even think that it's not something that you factor in in life that, hey, I may lose a body part or I may go through <laughs> this traumatic situation. Yeah. It's, it's never. It's not anybody's vision board. No, never. It, it just doesn't. The list of things, if you write them out, that is not even, you know, thought of. I remember when the surgeon said, hey, you know, we're probably going to have to amputate your hand. You're just like, wait, I'll come, wait, can you rewind that? Can we start over? You know, <laughs> right. are you speaking a different language? You know, eventually over time, over the course of several surgeries, that that's eventually what ended up happening. 12 surgeries 12. in 21 days. Yep. So you're basically getting in and out of surgery. And some of the surgeries, you got to go in there and you got to clean stuff out. Mm-hmm. And so it's, and then some of you're actually amputating different things. And so yeah. really like every other day, there's every third day we're having surgery per se. And so that is something that I probably wouldn't wish on anyone. And that is something that, probably stretches you to your core more so than most things did losing let's say half of your potential career in the nfl to injury did that instill in you any sense that your destiny is out of your control i mean like that crazy stuff can happen to you that you can't predict i guess in football you can predict you're going to get hit hard right not necessarily because you see there's certain individuals that the hit may appear hard and it doesn't impact someone or some individuals right. that, you know, may jump awkwardly and then they, you know, have a career ending ACL. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And so that's the weird thing about the body. That's the weird thing about sport that some things you can understand it potentially, but not necessarily expect it. You just, you, you just can't, you, yeah. you know, so, so that that's hard. And then you don't actually think about it because it's organized chaos when you're playing sport. A lot of it is an art of how you move your body, your feel for what's happening around you. And so you can kind of protect yourself. You kind of know how to move with certain things to absorb and reflect, you know, impact. Did other parts of your athletic experience help you deal with this crazy, unexpected event in your life? How'd you get through it otherwise? I mean, for me, 
being injured people like to use the term resilience and grit and like some of those words and i think those are dangerous words <laughs> why do you think they're dangerous because you can't necessarily always replicate those things mm-hmm. if you haven't been through certain things and so if you're just asking a person that hasn't been stressed in a certain way to pull from somewhere that they would have needed you know previous trauma in either you're going to take them to a place that they don't know how to get out of or they just don't have that place to pull from and it's more frustration mm-hmm. than not and i guess in being in high pressure high stressful situations and taking lumps you pull some from there but then honestly there's a lot of work that has to be done from a therapy standpoint and mm. a truly understanding what's happening standpoint because once again it's abnormal to lose a body part right so there's no there's no way you can actually make sense of that hey you know you have your hand right now guess what tomorrow you're not gonna have your hand and you reach for something and you have pain and all that other stuff there's there's no way to really make sense of it and so you can't pull everything from your past you got to develop new stuff to help you through and some of it is upbringing i guess of continuing to work hard through it some of it is just the desire for what's on the other side to continue to address this so that once I get to the other side, I can be whole, whatever version that of myself that is. And then honestly, you got to have a dynamic support system around you because it's not something that you go through something that's dramatic enough. You can't get through it by yourself. You mentioned therapy. Did you have trouble asking for help or was it offered no. to you? No, I knew that I had to get some help and it's just the self awareness to say, okay, I feel, I feel more off than is within my scope or understanding. And so I can either try to figure this out by myself um, and I don't actually trust it because I don't actually know what's going on or I can figure out to find somebody that is well-equipped to navigate these situations. Right. I don't believe you have to do everything yourself. You mentioned family and friends. You have particular people that really were supportive and were there for you during that time. Yeah, I mean, I got a core group of people, you know, yeah. from my wife to, you know, close friends that are that have just been there in the mix. And so those individuals, they know how to push you they know how to support you they know how to challenge you they know how to when you get up when to lay down when to go for it when to throttle back um <laughs> and you can have honest conversations with them yeah um conversations that are like hey this is gonna come in hot you know you may not agree with it but i'm gonna tell you it anyway and i actually don't care what you think about it i'm gonna tell you anyway and having that honesty of people telling you exactly what you need to hear and actually what you want to hear you may not like it when you hear it but you actually want that information because it helps you get to where you want to go so you founded a company called vessel Mm -hmm. tell me why you founded it what you do and why you picked the name vessel so i'll start with the name so one of the things that i had to do when the accident happened was really return back to my core and understand okay like who am i in in this chapter like i don't play football you know, I'm not at Morgan Stanley anymore in the finance world. You did a short stint at Morgan Stanley post-football. Yeah, short stint at Morgan Stanley. Yeah. And so I was there when the accident happened. And mm-hmm. the accident, like, made me reevaluate everything. Yeah. And so rather than just going to jump into something, it's like, okay, who am I? What am I? What do I actually want to do? What started to happen when I came out of my accident, organization starts to say, hey, can you come in and speak to my company about grit, about change, about disruption, about all these things that are flavor of the moment? about team dynamics, about how you overcome these situations. And so as I would give more of these talks to these, you know, big companies, I'd ask like, what are you actually going through? And leader would say, hey, you know, we just had a new CEO come on board and we're trying to get everybody on board. 
hey, you know, we got to redo our whole IT system because it's dated and our people are resisting it. Or, hey, there's a true disruption. Our product, the patent expired on it, or we have to reinvent ourselves because mm. there's competition. What I would hear is change. And more importantly, what I would hear is how these organizations weren't necessarily ready to go through the change. And so for me, a lot of change either happens, you are evolving yourself and you're developing new skill sets. You're leveraging the diversity and inclusion within your organization so you can pull together like all these different resources and all this intellectual capital. Mm -hmm. Or it's really like how your team works together. What's the composition of your team? Do they actually function as a team? Do they function as collective individuals? And so I understood a lot of those moving parts from sports. And so as I would do more, I was like, hey, I need a little bit more business experience. And so I went to Harvard. They have a program that functions as their executive MBA. And then just the science of how people function there's an industry, organizational psychology, started getting my master's in that. We'll finish in a year just to complete it. And so what Vessel does is it goes in and it looks at how humans perform um, within organization around team dynamics, around culture, around diversity and inclusion, and how can you leverage the talents that's already within to navigate what you're going through to perform, create the desired outcome that you want. And so Vessel to me, looking internally, being from Liberia, Liberia actually registers the second most ships in the world. Next uh, to what? Panama? I think it's Panama. Is it Panama or Costa Rica? One okay. of those two. All right. Anyway. Uh, and so just like water, ships, and when you think of a vessel that's making these large, long, grueling trips across, you know, mm -hmm. the Pacific, the Atlantic, and they have to get precious cargo from one place to the another, that's what's basically happening when you think of organizations where the changes that they have to make and what they have to do, they're very complex, but they have to get there. And the thing about a vessel that large is once you get to a particular place, it's not designed to stay there. You know, you load up the precious cargo and then you go again. Mm. And so it symbolizes movement. It symbolizes going to different places to deliver something of value, which hopefully every organization wants to do. All people want to deliver something of value. And then once you deliver that thing of value, it's identifying the next way that you can deliver something of value somewhere else. And so what would you want your clients to say about the work you do for them? It's transformative. It leverages the full capabilities of the talent within in a very engaging way in the way that people learn and absorb things naturally. And so for me being an athlete, the performance side of it is important. And so there's a lot of things that may not directly tie back into like why we're here to do work at a high level in the first place. And so I like to focus on, okay, like what's the work that we're trying to do? Like how does team factor into the work that we're trying to do? How does culture, how does diversity and inclusion? Because right. if it just lives kind of in theory, you know, people may not absorb it. I know that I'm very passionate about the thing that I do and I want to do it with these collection of people. How can I supercharge that and go, go make it happen? You talk about diversity and inclusion and in the last year, you know, it seems like companies are trying to make up for well, 50 years or 400 years, depending upon how you, how mm -hmm. you define it, of progress they should have been making in four quarters. And it's become an increasingly politicized issue. How do you talk to companies about diversity and inclusion in a way that everybody in the room will listen and not be threatened by it? It's threatening when somebody has to take ownership of it. If it's like, hey, you know, white men have made this a problem and you're a white male. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You're, but I'm not that white, man. You're like, <laughs> I wasn't here. Like, I didn't do it, you know? Or <laughs> right. even if you did do it, you don't want to be a part of it. Yeah. But if you're like, hey, you're running into this situation right here where we're all finite in our experiences and our talents, 
and you may need someone that has a different perspective. Mm-hmm. Now you switched it to more performance. You're, you're filling a gap that you don't necessarily have. And so what you see, a lot of people are trying to check boxes and they're looking at the metrics to say, we don't have this number of people. We need to put those number of people in this position. Mm-hmm. And they haven't really set up a plan for them to succeed. But if you're looking across your business and you're like, hey, we're operating with these type people, we probably need these type people over here. And not only do we need to put them over here, we need their experiences over here as well because they're going to have a very different perspective. And mm-hmm. that difference of perspective, it's like a puzzle piece. And so if you have all these different puzzle pieces, it's basically who's going to make their puzzle picture the fastest in the first by collecting all these different experiences. And so once you're looking at it from a performance standpoint, you're actively seeking diversity versus actively seeking to fill it up with a metric. And that's a way that it's not threatening because if I know you may have more technical experience than me, I'm actually wanting to bring you in. And if I know you're entering into a region that I can add value into, and you know that as well, you're actually going to want to bring me in because now we're seeing the value that's being created versus just the, hey, let's right the wrong. And you achieve the same thing. It's just the way that people absorb it sometimes is different. It doesn't put the pressure on them to feel as if they're guilty or responsible for something that they don't want to take ownership of. Right. You've got the academic chops, clearly. Mm -hmm. But do you think people are more open to listening to you because they know you from your football career? I mean, that opens a door. And and then I think once the door is open, is up to the person in the door, you know, to deliver. Right. And so when there's something of value created, people respect it and people want to continue to engage with you. Mm -hmm. And if not, people, you know, politely tell you, hey, that that, that was great. You were a great football player. Yeah, you were great. And then it starts to talk about football again. Um, But if it, you know, hey, a lot of the conversations start with football and then it's like, oh, guess what? We have more problems that we actually need to tackle. You know, no pun intended. How can we solve for this? So you may not know this, but I do comedy. And when I've talked to famous comedians, they say you have about four minutes up front where people are like, hey, look, it's, you know, mm-hmm. Norm MacDonald or whoever, and they'll give you like this much window. Mm-hmm. And if you don't deliver in that window, they're like, okay, prove it to me. This guy from SNL mm-hmm. wasn't funny, you know, mm-hmm. like, so you get a little bit of a break, but you got to bring the goods pretty quickly. Yeah. And there's a, I mean, there's this concept of head, heart, hands. Okay. And so there has to be an emotional connection. There has to be a cognitive connection. If you're not doing all those different things, And there has to be a physical connection of of like, how do I actually do the work? Mm -hmm. If you're not incorporating all those things in an engaging way, people kind of are like, man, I I can find another way to use my time. And and so I always go into a space with gratitude. Like you're allowing me to be in this space to deliver something of value. Not necessarily like it's expected that I'm going to be in this space. And so I treat it almost like a performance, like a game when you're working with people, the the stakes are very high, you know, it's happening in real time and they're expecting a result. And so it's my job to create that result for them. All right, let's go back to football for just a second. I just want to ask you a couple more questions about football and we'll wrap it up in a second. So a lot of people find college football, especially here in the South, Mm -hmm. they're more involved with college football than they are with professional football. Their heart, speaking of heart, heads and hands, Mm -hmm. Their heart is with their college team more than it is with their pro team. What's the difference from a player's perspective between college and pro ball? That's a really good question. With college, you have individuals that they're in the same class as you. Mm. 
they've walked the same are halls they really as you. are they really the same classes no, as you? <laughs> um, we actually contrary to popular belief athletes do go to class and do perform well in class and so when you have let's say UGA holds 92 93 94,000 people a lot of those people have actually experienced the same thing that you've experienced and so there's a deeper connection whereas in pro sports a lot of people don't actually know you. They know the player, but they don't know the person. I'll run into people now and say, hey, you know, I had class with so-and-so player. I was with so-and-so player, you know, X, Y, and Z. They actually feel like they have a connection. And you don't just see professional athletes walking around. But if I have to get on the bus to, you know, go from dorms to North Campus, mm-hmm. I'm on there with, you know, 80 other students. And we're in that moment, the same person, the same student trying to pass the class. And so I think that's the difference. It's just a deeper connection. Is it a more emotional connection, even for the players? Because in the stands, I mean, everybody's cheering for the team, where they went to college or that they've been affiliated with. But like, as a player, is it a more emotional connection to the college team than it is to the pro team? Is it a teammate thing? And and teammates Mm -hmm. are always teammates. That's different. So the teammate aspect, some of my favorite teammates came from the pros. I would say the lead up is different. Like once again, if we're playing Florida and I'm in biology (laughs) <laughs> you know, like, like we're going through this process together. Whereas if the Browns are playing the Bengals, people are at work, they're doing their own thing. You're just not as, in one, you're more isolated and one, you're together. Yeah. And so that togetherness, and then you may have people that say, my grandfather, my grandmother went to Georgia. You know, my aunt went to Georgia. My sister went to Georgia. Even if they didn't go, they know somebody that's personally involved with that organization or right. that university. Whereas in the pros, it's not like, hey, my cousin played, you know, for the Falcons. Most people don't know a personal, professional player. Right. How do you feel about college players getting paid? I love it. Yeah. Here's why. If you have a person that is a computer scientist, Mm -hmm. Facebook wants to hire them to an internship. The best computer scientist will probably get paid a little bit more. You have someone that's going to go work on Wall Street and Goldman wants to hire them. Based off of their talent, they can go. If you have a musician that's in class and then has done so well, they can go tour. They're going to be compensated for their talents. Right. Now, if a player from the University of Georgia gets compensated more than a player from Southwest, North Pacific State, there's probably a finance student at Georgia that's getting compensated a little bit more than a person from Southwest, Northwest Pacific State. You know, Mm -hmm. it's just kind of just how it shakes out based off of how the universities are. And so the value that's created or the talent that is with a particular player or entity or university, they shouldn't be penalized for that. I feel like they're doing the work. They should be compensated theoretically. I just wonder, you know, if within teams now that NCAA players can be compensated for their social media presence, right? Mm -hmm. For their image likeness. And I can't remember what the exact term is, but like if one player on the team is making $300,000 a year or $100,000 a year. And then the average player is making $3,000 a year. What does that do to the team dynamic? What does it do when one finance student gets a $100,000 internship and the other one gets, you know, nothing for the summer? Yeah. You would basically have to change capitalism to solve that problem. And that's not on the players to change that. Yeah. And this is where I think the universities can step up and teach players the business side of what's going on. One of my favorite players all time at Georgia is a guy named Rodrigo 
the kicker, the kicker right yeah, now, yeah. hot rod with the sweet glasses. With the sweet glasses, <laughs> and had he been at Georgia right now, mm-hmm. he would have one of the highest endorsement deals at Georgia right now, and he's a kicker. And so when you think of linemen, whether it's deals for food or deals for things that appeal to their abilities, or you think gymnasts who pound for pound are probably the best athletes in the world. Uh, some of the things that they can do with their talents, equestrian, some of the things that they can do with their talents, swimmers, some of the things they can do with their talents, whether it's training or endorsement deals for whatever they're interested in. Everybody can participate, not just the star players. And that's where the schools can come up and teach certain individuals how to leverage their skill sets differently. Honestly, I love it. Yeah, I was reading about it this week and it's going to be exciting to see how it plays out and to see how the most creative players in all sports find a niche for themselves because why shouldn't they have the opportunity to earn money while they play? Cause they don't have time to go get a part-time job, mm. you know, in an office someplace. Nah. Right? And then it'd be regional. You may see individuals in California that may sway more tech or Hollywood individuals in the Northeast may sway more to, you know, finance and mm-hmm. those, you know, mm-hmm. biotech. It'd be all over the place. And I think, It'd be interesting to see how it shakes out. Yeah, I agree. If you had a magic wand, how would you help athletes prepare for life after sports? What would you teach them and what would you want them to know? I would tell them to make the most of sports. I think sports creates relationship. It creates work ethic. It creates opportunity. It creates tremendous network of individuals. But once again, it goes back to, I share something with, a lot of people that have gone to the University of Georgia, whether they played or not. And so athletics has, you know, been a, a catalyst for that. And so a lot of times it's not actually even knowing what to do after sports is to have a solid foundation so that you can figure out what to do after sports. Mm. Because in fairness, whoever has to change or has that midlife crisis, they're figuring out what's next. But athletes just have to do it at a lot younger age. And so if you have the right foundation, you can figure it out. Or you may discover something entirely new that you didn't know exist. Right. Owen's going to film this question. Okay. What is the question? Do you feel rich? Do I feel rich? I would say, yeah, I think we're all rich. And if you look at what people want out of life, they want joy. They want happiness. They want people that love them. They want experiences. And experiences are, sometimes that can mean travel. Sometimes it can mean having a great conversation. Sometimes it can be, you know, we're all in the same area experiencing the same thing. And so I think rich is more of a feeling of where you are in the world and how you come to the world with the people that you're in the world of. And the more of those moments that you have, the richer you feel. Sounds good to me. Mm. So I have to ask you, do you feel rich? Oh, man. You can't turn the tape. This is my podcast. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I've, I've said this many times on the podcast. The richest I've ever felt, strictly from a financial perspective, was the day I paid off my student loans. Mm. When I went from having $80,000 in debt mm-hmm. in 1997 to having a net worth of zero, yeah, and that was like whatever in 2000. I paid them off in like five years, I think. And I was like, sweet. Yeah. And going from feeling like you don't have control of your financial life to a world of financial autonomy. Mm-hmm. That to me was the most empowering accomplishment of my early adulthood. Okay. 
And everything I've made since then is gravy. Mm -hmm. I've been blessed, crazy blessed financially. But honestly, I mean, like really from a financial perspective, it's all just a matter of like, are you living within your means? Are you making the choices that allow you to do what you want to do? And I feel rich in the sense that I've got two wonderful children. I've got a wife that supports me 100% in my dream chasing, mm -hmm. which is to be a stand-up comedian at 52 years old. I love it. And she's like, how do we help you go to the next level? How do we push it further? And so, yeah, I feel, I feel crazy rich. On the comedian front, there's a, I was listening to Mike Epps. He was on a podcast and he was talking about being a comedian isn't something that you can rush. It's like you, you got to actually like learn the art of being a comedian, which takes a while. And because it takes a while, there's a lot of comedians that hit their groove later in life because you can't cheat the process. I'm about eight years full time into it. Mm -hmm. And I feel like I'm just getting the hang of it. I don't know anyone that's functioned at a high level that cheated the process. Yeah. What are you working on to become the best at over the next eight years of your life? So it was very intentional of establishing a foundation, which was the reason for Harvard, the reason for getting the master's, the reason for having mentors that function at a super high level in the space. And with that foundation, I feel like the continuation of adding experiences that make my viewpoints unique. And then I'll say it like this. When Steve Jobs created Apple as we know it today, it wasn't the technology side. It was the merger of liberal arts and technology. Mm. And I think that the more people make, bring like these two distinct things together and create value in that sense is how the world will move forward and how the world will continue to innovate. And so now I have the foundation of expertise in one area, and then it will be just continuing to add different elements of things so that the way that I come up with solutions, we come up with solutions as a team is unique and it actually solved the problem in ways that are very hard to replicate because other people don't have those, you know, don't make those connections. I love it. Mohammed. I appreciate your time. Where can our listeners find out more about you and the work you're doing at Vessel? My website is thevessel.com, T-H-E-V-E-S-S-O-L.com. And all my social media handles are Iron Massaqua. So ever since the accident, you know, I've kind of taken on the Iron moniker. And then LinkedIn is just my name. You'll either find me or you'll find my dad. And, you know, my, <laughs> my dad will get you in contact with me. Oh, that's cool. We'll <laughs> yeah. put links to those in the show notes. I want to say thanks again for, for your time today. All right. Thank you. Thank you. Well, I really am happy I got to meet Muhammad, and I want to say thank you so much to my friend Mike Dowdle for making it happen. If you have somebody that you think would be a great guest on Crazy Money, you have a personal connection to him, by all means, shoot me a note at paul at crazymoneypodcast.com, paul at crazymoneypodcast.com. I would love to hear from you. While we're talking about connecting, why don't you do me a favor, if you have a second, make sure if you're listening on Apple Podcasts to press that plus at the top of the show page and write a review and rate the show. It's really, really helpful for people that don't know about it to read the objective opinions of the listeners. And I really appreciate you hanging out all the way to the end of the show. Let's talk about takeaways here. I love that when I asked him what values his parents taught him, Muhammad answered with hard work and appreciation of life. There's a lot of people out there that want to discount the value of hard work. I know a lot of people come from less equal circumstances than others. That's not debatable, but hard work, regardless of where you come from, is going to get you as far as you can possibly go. And Muhammad is proof of that. Appreciation of life 
You know, he's dealt with lots of challenges along the way, but he keeps moving forward. That I think is due to an appreciation of life. It's not going to be perfect, but he keeps moving forward. That rolls us into the number two change is going to happen. And if you're a pro athlete, you know that football is going to end someday and you don't know the crazy things that life will throw at you. But as Muhammad said, we aren't one gift, we're multifaceted. So when life, the universe, whoever takes away uh, your career, your hand, a loved one, you know, keep moving forward. You're blessed and you're talented in ways that you haven't even discovered yet. Never stop pushing, keep moving forward, never stop growing. Number three, role models are key. Muhammad's now a role model. He didn't ask to be, but he is now for a lot of people who've got to overcome things. But, you know, he really mentioned that he didn't know what a lawyer was until he got to college. He didn't have those examples around him. So to the extent that you can be a role model for somebody else by mentoring, sponsoring a person who doesn't have them in their life, you're opening their eyes to the potential that they don't even know they have. So uh, keep that in mind as you move forward and look for ways to make a difference in other people's lives. I think a lot of us take for granted that, oh, well, you know, I'm, I'm this person. I have this professional degree. I have this experience. Well, you know what? You're probably, if you're interested in this kind of show, you're probably a lot more successful than you give yourself credit for, or you're on your way to being that much more successful. So look around you and ask yourself, how can you spread the awareness, the ambition, potential enlightening, the potential maximizing awareness that a young person like a young Muhammad didn't have. Show them what they can accomplish in their life. Thank you so much for sticking around to the end of the show. We're going to be back next week with another Encore episode, one of our best guests ever. I hope that summer is treating you well. If you're traveling, travel safe. Use the time in the car or on the airplane to catch up on old episodes of Crazy Money. I love doing it. There's so many great people I've gotten to listen to. And if you have a minute, spread the word, send these episodes to a friend so they can benefit from my guest's wisdom as well. In the meantime, Mike Carano, thank you so much and make me sound smart.